0: You're listening to a message from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix that creates space for people to practice the ways of Jesus together. I'll stop. Good evening, Kaleo. Good to see you all. Uh, as Emma said, we all know each other, so I'm still Chris. Glad to be here. Uh, if you are a father, or you are fatherly in any way, happy Father's Day uh, to you and in that. As always, it's a it's a privilege to to share this space, to be together. Um, I think that's one of my favorite things even as we kind of have a continually rotating group of people who are, are sharing or singing or leading us in different spaces is that just this genuine acknowledgement that we're a, we're a community of people and when you get the opportunity to be the one to have a, a mouthpiece I guess for a moment that's a, that's a special thing and it means, it means a lot to me and so uh, today we're going to just keep diving in doing what we do and we're going to look at Matthew 9, 35 into Matthew 10, 8-ish, or whatever. What I'm going to kind of do, I'm going to read the whole section for us, and, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to kind of zoom out above it. And so I'm standing on the stairs like that, and then we'll come back down into kind of uh, maybe how I would describe my personal experiences thinking about some of what this passage has to teach us. So be a little less verse-by-verse type of stuff um, but I think, I think you'll catch on pretty quick. So let's, let's read the passage. It starts in Matthew 9, 35, and it reads like this. Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he, he healed every kind of disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into the fields. Jesus called, this is now in chapter 10, Jesus called his 12 disciples together and gave them authority to cast out evil spirits and to heal every kind of disease and illness. Here are the names of the 12 apostles. I'm just going to read their names, not their little blurbs next to them. First, Simon, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James, Thaddeus, who you probably never think of, Simon, and Judas Iscariot. Verse 5, Jesus sent out the 12 apostles with these instructions. Don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans, but only to the people of Israel, God's lost sheep. Go and announce to them that the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with leprosy, and cast out demons. Give as freely as you have received. All right, let's pray before we see what's going on there. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, again, we just thank you that you are a God who is with us, that you are a God who loves us, that you are a God who meets us in this space, and that there is something Special, unique, I guess however we might say that when we gather in this place together expectant that you will be here with us, that you will reveal yourself to us and we pray that today that would be no different. Show us more of who you are, show us how to follow in the ways of your son Jesus. Remind us that we are loved, that we are your children and that you desire to go with us into the world doing this work that this passage invites us to do. I pray that I would speak words that are for you and from you, and anything that I say that's not. I pray we would forget that immediately. God, Uh, we love you, we need you, and so reveal yourself to us this evening in your name. We pray, Amen. Okay, kind of a cool passage, a little bit, little bit of details going on there too. It's always kind of fun to be reminded of the names of the twelve apostles too, and you're kind of like, yeah, I forgot about all those other guys, Um, but. We're not going to talk about them. The movement of this passage is really, uh, I don't know, interesting to me, I guess, in the way it reveals that there's some sort of need always present among the people that Jesus is encountering, that people have needs, which we're kind of like, yes, yes right that makes sense but it's fun to acknowledge that reality like that's that's how jesus meets people as people in their need and so upon this like revelation that that's true jesus finds people who have needs and what's his reaction to that compassion Jesus has compassion, and then his compassion causes him to send out others on a mission to serve those in need. And therefore, the cycle of meeting the needs of people begins where Jesus has compassion, initiates the action, and invites us to join in meeting those needs as well. In this particular story, and actually in kind of like Matthew 8 through Matthew 10, the need comes in the form of a crowd consistently the crowd is the one defined as having needs. And the crowds that continue to be amazed by Jesus, even a couple verses before what we read, they're always amazed at what Jesus is up to and what he's saying. They stand in awe. They're like, I've never heard anything like that or seen anything like that. It's kind of this section in Matthew where that keeps transpiring. And the crowds then, the ones that are amazed, are also the ones who are in need and most need in this scene. They're everywhere in Matthew's gospel, but it seems they are continually viewed. Whenever this word crowds happens, they're continually viewed as people in search of something, people in need of something. Why do they keep showing up as a crowd, so to speak, to hear Jesus, see Jesus, experience Jesus, ask for healing from Jesus? Because they're in search of something. Maybe being healed, maybe being a part of something, maybe something meaningful in their lives, maybe just some bread. Like, we don't, we don't know. It's a wide array of things. But I find that to be an invitation to just acknowledge our neediness and whatever it might be. And be like, well, yeah, let's show up and see if Jesus might have something to say to that. Matthew describes this crowd in a pretty unique way, though. It's probably not a way that, if we are the crowd, we would necessarily like to be described. But he says that they are confused and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Which, if we pause on that for a second and we just say, have we ever felt confused or helpless? Have we ever felt like we were people who didn't have a way to go? We didn't know where it was to be or how we would get there. Right? So they'll like, go, oh, yeah. That's, that's us. And so the question in this passion passage becomes, who will, in fact, show them the way? Who will show them the way? Throughout Matthew 8 and 9, Jesus is continuously performing these miracles that actually transform the social conditions of the people who are often described as the poor or the needy or the oppressed. And as that happens, outsiders in that context become insiders with Jesus. And then we get to the spot in our Matthew 10, right? Jesus has these 12 apostles, and he gives them the power to do the same thing that he had been doing. The very things he was accomplishing, he invites them to do and gives them the power to do it. So the disciples' mission, and if we think of disciples as those who follow Jesus... (laughs) The mission is to be like that of Jesus, to meet the needs of the quote-unquote crowds, any who find themselves on the outside, the outsiders, and specifically the way Jesus talks, the poor. And that's not always just monetarily poor, holistically poor even. It often means monetarily poor, but it's not just that. So there's this thing that Jesus is doing, this cycle that he's creating At this point. And so it it might be obvious to us when we read a passage like this, but I think it's worth highlighting. And honestly, it's quite simple on some level, too, to like preach on this passage because it's kind of straightforward what's going on here, right? Jesus sees the plight of people and he has compassion. Like, that's just like that's what it says. But I think there's two things that are really special about that. Jesus sees the needs of people we talk often in the life of kaleo about how whatever the injustice that exists in the world once once you've seen it you can't unsee it you can ignore it but you can't unsee it and so jesus sees that there's need and his response is one of compassion compassion is a word that maybe we have lots of different understandings for. Maybe it's been used to mean different things. The way in which this word is used in this passage is like it came from the guts of Jesus. Jesus saw the need and his compassion, moved from his bowels into his gut. Like he felt it to the core of who he was. He wasn't just like, oh, that's a bummer that that's happening. He couldn't separate himself from the fact that there was need in his presence. It's that kind of compassion that Jesus has, guttural compassion. And one thing that I thought was really interesting when in thinking about that type of compassion is that that type of compassion cannot be faked. You can't fake a guttural compassion that compels you to move to meet the need of anyone who might be in need. And for me, that was such an interesting way to think about how I would respond to any need around me. Because you can't fake it to actually show up in that way. You could probably do the thing, but your compassion isn't real. So for to follow the ways of Jesus then, again, the implications to me seem fairly straightforward. Our compassion for those in need can't be faked. And when we see the need and we experience the compassion, what will it do? It will move us to meet the need. This all seems, again, so straightforward, doesn't it? Like that, that's sometimes what I think is so interesting about following Jesus is that it is actually fairly straightforward, it's just really hard, <laughs> right? He's like, yeah, open up your eyes, do as I did. Let's do this together. And we're like, yeah, until you know, we are ourselves and fumble around. But I think there's still this wild thing that Jesus thinks so highly of us because we're, st- we're literally the answer to this problem, right? This is- so here, let me break it down like this, right? Jesus is moved by what he sees. He has compassion and it moves him towards a concrete action as a response to the needs of the people. He heals them, provides care in really specific ways for what they need. He's cultivating ultimately a safe and welcoming space for their own healing and thus also their belonging. The outsiders become insiders. They become people together. A miraculous social transformation, if you will. Because I think sometimes we think of Jesus performing miracles and we're like, this person couldn't walk and now they can walk. And I'm like, sometimes the most miraculous thing is that this person had no community and now they have community. Right? Like there's other things that are miraculous about what Jesus is doing here, not just in the physical sense. And so what Jesus is teaching then, he's saying is that seeing needs and having a compassionate response, there's no other thing you can do other than have some sort of call for faithful action that follows that. Again, I know that like on some level when I say it out loud even and I hear it like coming through the speaker's back, I'm like, that's so basic. Like that's obvious when we read a passage like this or what we know about following Jesus. And yet that's like, that's what he's saying. So what's interesting about that is when Jesus tells the disciples then at the end of Matthew 9, he tells them to pray that the Lord will send out laborers into the harvest, right, which is probably, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you've heard that, right? Like we need the harvest is plenty. The laborers are few. We need workers in the harvest. And it's wild that Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray this because what are they about to find out? That they are the answer to that prayer, Right, like, I can imagine this little prayer group that they have, right? Jesus and these, these 12, he's got 12 people this day, these 12 guys. He's like, gathers them all up. He's like, we've got to pray for workers. They're like, yeah, we do, Lord. That's good. Let's pray for that. Lord, would you send workers? You know, like, like how, I don't know how often we do that, uh, it's, it's kind of honestly the the way in which Kaleo chooses to talk about giving or generosity on some level. It's kind of like if you see and need, it doesn't need to like go through the tithe into the church's hands, out through the pastor's hands. or the, Like if you see, you can meet it, right? Like you didn't have to get the whole prayer group together and be like, should we meet? Them? No, you should. Like, it's just, it's all, you go for it, you know? And I just think that that's funny that I can imagine them doing that. So Jesus calls his disciples to be those workers that they're praying for. And it's kind of a, a risky mission, right? Because this is, this compassion's needed for needy people. And what do we learn in all of this is that words are insufficient. Like saying we care is literally just insufficient. Just praying the prayer is actually insufficient, the words by themselves, which obviously you can do your own social commentary on all of that. And you can think of any place in which there might be someone in need in the world you all occupy. And the idea of saying, I care about them, in word, ends up being insufficient. Jesus is inviting us to something more than that. To find really Interesting, right? This mission has to have visible signs, Jesus seems to be saying, right? The kingdom of God is visible. The message about the coming of God's rule must be rendered believable through concrete demonstrations of God's caring. Faith in action. Theologian Stanley Hauerwas offers this summary. He says, Jesus does not let the gathering opposition stop his mission. He goes through the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news and curing every disease. He's surrounded by the crowds and he has compassion for them because they are like sheep without a shepherd. In a wonderful moment, Jesus, confronted with such need, asks the disciples to pray that God will send helpers. The mission of the church has begun. The disciples' prayer is answered and the answer turns out to be them. In fact, Harawas goes on to say, Christianity is not a philosophy that can be learned separate from those who embody it. Listen to that for a second. Christianity is not a philosophy that can be learned separate from those who embody it. If that truth, if the truth that is Christ were a truth that could be known in principle, then we would not need apostles but the way the gospel is known is by one person being for another person the story of Christ. The way of Jesus is always embodied. That's what Jesus is saying. It's embodied in people around. He's always modeling it. So he sees the need. He has compassion. And then he's literally like, we should do this together. Let's pray and prays with his apostles. They're like, we need more workers. Yeah, help me with it. Then they help. Thus, the call of the church has always been for all of us to join in with Jesus in doing that. Could Jesus like snap his fingers, right? And everything would be all right and organized and we'd be in heaven and like floating around. Sure, that's not how Jesus does it though, right? We're invited to bring it about on earth as it is in heaven until Jesus returns again and makes all things new. So this is then why Jesus provides the disciples with the spirit-inspired power. Right? After he has them pray, after he has them watch him, have compassion and meet the needs, the authority the disciples now have is the authority of Jesus Thus, Jesus is the one meeting the needs of the people through his disciples. And I just think that's a beautiful image. First of all, the way in which Jesus relinquishes his power, the spirit-given power to his followers to join him in this thing, which they end up bumbling a bit along the way, right, is so much so where Jesus is saying, I just, I don't want to do this without you. Which is, to me, the most compelling call to mission, if you will, is that Jesus wants to do it with us, and every time we encounter somebody in need, we have the opportunity to offer them Jesus through what we do, because he, too, offers us the same spirit-inspired power to go and be that. Okay. Okay. This is where I make a weird transition. With all of this in mind, what I want to do is I want to share a bit of like my personal experience about thinking about how all this has recently played out for me, some things I was thinking about prior to the passage and then during the passage and then on a trip. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read to you what I've written down. Okay? I'm going to read to you what I've written down. Uh, I'm going to show you a picture, too, so you can see a picture. Treasury, you might have to help. Okay, thank you uh, with that. Okay, but let me tell you a story first. I'll read this part of the story. My wife and I recently, Kate, my wife Kate and I recently spent some time in Boston with her aunt and uncle. During our time there, I convinced the group to visit Marsh Chapel at Boston University. I wanted to experience the location where Howard Thurman had served as the first African American dean at a predominantly white institution. Howard Thurman is a hero and spiritual guide in my life through his writing, recorded talks, In the embodied life he lived, and it's always an inspiring gift to retrace parts of his life. During during Thurman's time as a pastor in San Francisco prior to becoming dean, and then during his time at Boston University, he was consistently cultivating communities that were groundbreaking in their multi-ethnic partnerships. His work was always motivated by a vision to break through barriers of separation so that those who have their backs against the wall would encounter God in liberating and inclusive spaces. His theological blend of contemplation and action have always inspired and convicted me. And so as I sat on the red cushioned chair in the front row of an empty chapel, I envisioned Thurman before me. Treasure, can you put that one up at the... Chapel-looking one? Yeah, that one. Crooked, but still, I was there. As I sat on the red cushion chair, I wondered, what might he say today? And how do I want to live in light of his life's teaching? Thurman is famous for a quote in which he encouraged a friend during a one-on-one conversation. He said, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and do that because what the world needs is more people who have come alive. In light of all of this, I felt like I needed to share, one, what's been stirring in me, because, two, I'm always also trying to live what makes me come alive. My hope is that we can begin to realize Thurman's revolutionary vision and what he called the search for common ground. In his book, by the same title, he wrote, I have always wanted to be me without making it difficult for you to be you. And I'm afraid that some of us who profess to be Christians keep making it difficult for people to be them. So here's what I have to say. As a follower of Jesus, I find it disheartening how time and again professing Christians dehumanize people, especially those who, in the words of Howard Thurman, have their backs against the wall. For instance, the ways in which professing Christians mock and malign their neighbors and friends who, even often unbeknownst to them, are part of the LGBTQ community. The ways in which professing Christians wield the term woke as an epithet in order to obscure and ignore racist ideas while upholding a white dominant status quo that continually harms their BIPOC neighbors. The ways in which professing Christians devalue the giftedness and contributions of women by deeming that, whether in word or deed, women are not only too weak, too emotional, or too incompetent, but are also defined by their bodies, looks, relationship statuses, and ability to give birth. The ways in which professing Christians universalize people who experience poverty or homelessness as simply lacking a work ethic and who therefore deserve as if they had it coming to have their families or opportunities or possessions confiscated. The ways in which professing Christians who are able-bodied mock, hinder, or ignore the access to basic human needs of love, belonging, and life to those who do not fit their definition of normal. The ways in which professing Christians refuse to relinquish their gun-owning idolatry even as gun violence rises to the number one killer of children. The ways in which professing Christians fail to interrogate their biases or acknowledge the ways in which the community of people who have their backs against the wall are made up of a complicated intersection of what is listed above and so much more. The Jesus I follow is found at Thurman's wall. In fact, he's been there all along. And I hope each of us might learn to take our cues from Jesus and at the bare minimum offer basic human dignity to one another. And to put a a fine point on it. Professing Christians need to stop mocking the human dignity of neighbors who, at some point or another, find themselves cast to the margins of society where that basic human dignity, not to mention their human rights, are infringed upon. Therefore, in what should be the safest of places, I'm asking professing Christians to stop cultivating places that are outright harmful and unsafe to those who have their back against the wall. And especially above all, stop perpetuating such harm. May we all remind ourselves of the humble love of Jesus A Jesus who, in fact, came into the world not to condemn it, but to love it. To love it with a liberating love. For none of us is free until everybody is free. And so I'm not actually sure what, if anything, (laughs) all of that might mean for you personally Or for Kaleo as a whole. Or for all of the professing Christians in the room and beyond. But what I would like to do in our context is I'd like to just create space for Jesus to speak the final word. In light of all we've heard, in light of all we've talked about, in light of all we've experienced today as we've been together thus far. Let's ask the Spirit of God to speak to us about it to reveal the love of God to us. And so after hearing all this, this is the question to ask the Spirit of God right now. Spirit of God, what do you want me to know? And what do you want me to do? So Lord, give us ears to hear that. Holy Spirit, as we continue to just wait in your presence, desiring to hear from you as you speak to us in ways in which you answer the question of what you want us to know and what you want us to do, just pray that we could pause one more time even as I'm sure and countless things run through our minds, and we just ask you again, in light of even what we're hearing as we sit here in the stillness of this space, we ask again that you would continue to clarify your voice for us. Spirit, what is it that you want us to know, and what is it that you want us to do? Lord, give us ears to hear. Our Son and Holy Spirit, again, we thank you that you are a God who meets us, that you are a God who invites us to join you at work in this world, that you are a God who sees us, has compassion on us, and desires to meet our needs. And I pray that as we receive such goodness and healing and wholeness from you, that we would seek to then join you in bringing about such wholeness. In the world, that we would join you in the work of the miraculous social transformation in which outsiders become insiders with you. We love you, in your name we pray. Amen. For more resources or information about Kaleo, please visit our website at kaleophx.com or follow us on social media. If this episode has been helpful to you, let us know or share it with someone you know.